0: Giving us a five star review is the equivalent of swiping right on the Son of a Pitch podcast on Tinder. So if you like the sexy, dulcet tones of Max and Vince in your earholes, you know what to do. Give us a five star review and a little sexy comment. Cheers.
1: Yeah, uh, son of a pitch. Yeah, this is something you don't want to miss. Interviews with creatives and the best strategists. All the top in Australia who's steady making moves. Uh The podcast that puts you right in the pitch room. Yeah, professionals in this market. Uh, Time to get it started. Uh, Giving some complex problems, so let's see how you can solve it. Tune in with some Aussies. I bet you can't resist. Yeah, yeah, get it hyped. This is Son of a Pitch. Dylan, you son of a Pitch. I like to
0: think of this episode as the don't get fired episode of the Son of a Pitch podcast because we interviewed my new boss, uh, Justin Graham, who is the chief strategy officer of MNC Sachi Australia.
2: I think in this episode of the podcast, you can actually hear Max shitting his dacks <laughs> as we talk to Justin throughout the entire thing. This is true. Uh, Justin has had one of the quickest rises we've
0: seen in Andland and on the pod started in banking and consulting, and then was mentored by the Todd Sampson, who you might know from Gruen and Body Bodyhack. We gave him uh, an interesting challenge, as we have all our guests, except for Adam Ferrier,
2: who refused to uh, participate. <laughs> and this challenge is, how do you get people to agree with banning cars exclusively from the CBDs of Australia? And Justin had a great response, didn't he, Max?
0: Yeah, which you can hear at the end of the episode.
2: Justin Graham, CSO of MNC Sargent. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, you, you've gone very deep.
3: Uh, that feels like a long time ago. So I uh, went to Pennant Hills High School here in, in Sydney, and uh, which was a great experience. And when I was getting to the end of um of year 12 my my two favorite subjects and the two subjects i guess i was better at than the others was art and business and uh, i was convinced i was going to go and do fine art so i got into the college of fine arts uh and uh was heading in one direction to go and i don't know where that takes you i don't probably not to a job and probably not to a salary of any sort but (laughs) uh but it would have been a lot of fun and then my father um, brought home this application to say, oh, you could apply for a scholarship at the Commonwealth Bank and they would pay for all your university. Uh, so I thought I'll throw my hat in the ring and go and do that even though it wasn't exactly what I was thinking of and uh, somehow I got it. And you're right, there was two of us across Australia that were given this scholarship. So uh, I had one of those sliding door moments even as a 17-year-old and I went, you know what, I'm, gonna, I'm not really sure what I want to do. I can go and do art... Uh, in my own time, um, I'm going to go and do business. And so to get the scholarship, I had to go and do a Bachelor of Business at, at UTS, actually. and so that was where I started my first time with the Commonwealth Bank. Right. so they
0: were prepping you to go work for the bank eventually. this was the this was the point that was of the, the scholarship? idea. Yeah, yeah that sure. was the
3: idea. It was they would pay for my Scott, they would pay for my university. Uh, I had to go and do some work for them through my time there. Uh, and at the end of it, the idea is that they'd have a suitable job for you at the end. Right. Uh, and I probably shouldn't say this because they're one of my largest clients, but the job wasn't suitable. Oh, uh, so, uh, interesting. So, I did what a number of people do that I guess have a, a, um, a bit of experience and sort of half a head on them and go, I'm just going to go and be a consultant because no one knows what a consultant is. And, and this and, was at uh, Arthur, Arthur Anderson. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, the now defunct Arthur Anderson. So um, What was that role? Uh, they, it was. I think I might have actually been in a marketing job at the time. So, uh, yeah, I, I didn't actually investigate and they were fantastic about it. They invested money and, and I'd obviously put a lot of time into them as well and we left on really good terms uh, and at the time I wanted to go and, um, I guess, work uh, in a bit of a different direction to find myself in, in the world of strategy at the time actually, so... Uh, I went off to, to Arthur Anderson as a, a as a junior
2: burger strategy consultant. Whoa, so you actually knew about strategy and that it existed even back then. Uh, sort of. So, business strategy we're talking about, right? So, this is like more your management consultancy, like the the Boston-style old-school management consultancy.
3: Strategy. Yeah, and old-school is a good term for it, actually. I think back then it was – I worked with some brilliant people and some that I'd still regard as mentors, but uh, – you know, it was, it was formative years. It was a time where we think around corporate values now and reputation management. So, Arthur Anderson were supremely respected around the world for what they did. And I remember on the first day at the induction um, being taken through the values of Arthur Anderson. And one of the values was maverick. Wow. And I thought, wow, that is a really punchy word for a big, supposedly big four consulting slash audit tax firm. Uh, and then, I guess, four years later, their maverickness took them down. And uh, if you've seen the movie, The Smartest Person in the Room, around Enron, um, it, you know, it describes a company that was um, maverick slash arrogant slash corrupt slash fraudulent, uh, or certainly a partner group in particular in the, in the US, which has been widely reported. And it was an organization that went from 70,000 to 3,000 people in four months. Wow. Uh not and ideal. Uh, not ideal. Not ideal. Not ideal at ideal. all. <laughs> but but really interesting as a as a young guy that had some great experience to see how sustainable businesses can be and what I guess value add looks like as well and how to do the right thing. I think actually that that experience was brilliant, not just because of the people I I got to work for, uh, but also going through that at an early time in your career, yeah. you get to evaluate, I guess, what's right and what's wrong in the business sense. So, that was great.
0: What were they doing? That was shady. Were they fudging the books? Or? Yeah, they
3: were fudging the books around an energy company, Enron.
0: Uh, over, oh, they actually were fudging? Okay. okay. That's okay. right.
3: Yeah, in the US. Uh, and so, being a partnership model and right. affected the whole business globally where 99.99% of the people were brilliant okay and and and, and uh, you know model citizens around corporate responsibility uh, and consultancy and advisory and governance. But it was, often as it right. is, the but, two or three. That bring everyone down. I thought Enron was just the analogy. No, but I didn't know they were actually. <laughs> actually, no, with that's Enron right. Like... No, this is not something from Austin Powers a made up company. This was this was Enron. <laughs>
0: was, I'm guessing when you're doing the M and C values refresh, Maverick wasn't one <laughs> of them. Make <laughs> <it>. <laughs> Did it. Didn't make, didn't
2: the make it. No, leave <laughs> l- it on Top Gun. <laughs> I'm just I'm just glad that there's actually a company that lives up to calling themselves Mavericks. You <laughs> know, because right. a lot of people do, and they just they never live up to it. They so went down with the the Maverick ship. They went ship. down with the Maverick ship. <laughs> <laughs> Maverick ship. Yeah, very good. Good, very good. So, um the consultancy thing. that's obviously you just said it' it's it's one of the the best places to start. Are you pulling people from consultancies now um, into into your current kind of working situation here at M&C? That's a great question.
3: We haven't uh, to date. I have in the past, actually, there's been people uh, in in other firms where I've worked at Droga Five in particular, where young consultants came on board because I just love their ability to think. Um, I think as the lines get blurred in the future, Mm. uh, talent will move more freely across the two industries and the industries will actually start to blur overall. Mm. I think it's people, what I love about it is uh, they have such an interesting um, frame of reference around how to solve problems in Mm. consulting. Uh, um, You know, the challenge is obviously around being open to creativity
2: and being open to the magic that we do every day to get to what the solution could be. That's it. It's very much working within lanes, right? It's hard to kind of think laterally and break outside of the models that you're given and the frameworks you have to work with.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I was talking to someone today about this, actually, and we were um, yearning for we're talking about how much we would love better briefs in this industry. Uh, yeah, the real briefs that are driving business. Not that we don't get those, mm. but we know that the consultancies get an unfair, fair share of those, because uh, they're very good at delivering them. And I think if I'm going, if I was going to talk about that time, I think what's what sort of summarises that world back then, and I think things might have changed actually, but back then was management consultancies, and they will vary, but the sort of high-end ones are, are, are brilliant at doing what's been done before, mm-hmm. They're very good at benchmarking, very good at uh, advising boards uh, around risk management, around how they can move their business forward. I think, uh, but to a fault, right? Because you're in some ways looking in the past to look into the future, mm. whereas the great creative companies around at the moment, I think, are very much looking into the future mm. around you know how you start guiding people towards the behaviours and the needs that, that they're going to have. I think uh, on the flip side, traditionally the advertising industry is paranoid about doing the same thing twice. And so, if we see a great campaign, or we see something out there, we think, "Oh, we couldn't possibly do that." You hear it all the time with strategists, with creatives. I can't. Well, we've got to do better than that. Yeah, it's been done. Yeah, and I think that's crazy. I love the ambition of going and doing things that have never been done before, and we should always drive towards that. But I think there's also a piece around understanding what's happened before, learning from the masters in our industry, in other industries as well, and just building on that, and recognizing where you're taking an idea and taking it to a new place. So. I think if, if there's a business that can sit in the middle of those and have the rigour of both sides, that's the type of company that I'd want to work for. Do you think that business exists yet? We're certainly trying to take it there. Yeah, we're certainly trying to take M&C Saatchi to that place. Uh, you know, Like many businesses, there's a way to go. But we're excited around, I guess, how we can, I guess, uh, use our big brains here um, to solve problems, not just through the lens of advertising. So, if, they, if we can start to take those problems and look at all the things that we can do in there, which is, it might be communications, it might be products, it might be services, it might be a platform, whatever it might be. I think that's, that's a business where we need to get to. I think we need to understand our value better uh, in, in the industry, uh, and we need to have better financial acumen around what we do in that space, but we can't lose the magic. Yeah. And that's the tricky part. You've just got to hang on to the magic.
2: Really interesting. Uh, t- completely blown my mind on the old history repeating itself inside I think that's that's brilliant Um, with regard to where you went after Combank so obviously you've moved into advertising and into a planning role can you tell us about uh, who pulled you over and what that situation was and and how it evolved
3: yeah sure Uh, when when yeah when I didn't have a job and I think I was in my mid-20s I said, what do all guys that have, I guess, raced through university and with a scholarship and had a a decent job, I guess, do? You bugger off. And so I quit my job, sold my car, moved back with my parents to save some money, and then I travelled around the world for a year. So I went surfing around the world for a year, spent two months in Hawaii, then went to Cuba, into South America, had, I guess, the cliched Aussie guy (laughs) that had a surfboard and a camera... And a discman at the time. <laughs> did, you <laughs> did you have even the have long an iPod?
2: Hair? Uh, that, sorry? <laughs> did you have the long hair as no, well? No. Well,
3: by the end of it, I think I did. Uh, was, I wasn't going to waste money on haircuts. Uh, <laughs> but uh, went and I guess travelled around the world and was brilliant. Right? It was just good fun taking photos and you know drinking beer and hanging out with people and all that sort of stuff. And I came back and uh, and had a I guess one I guess another one of those sliding door moments where. Uh, I, I had an opportunity to go and work with one of my former managers uh, in another bank, actually, in a strategy role. And I thought, yeah, that's that's the smart thing to do. You know, that's, That would be a really sensible thing to go back and sort of get my life moving again in the right direction. And then uh, through a, a random contact, I met uh, a guy called Nigel Marsh, who at the time was the CEO of uh, Leo Burnett. And Nigel Marsh, uh, if you know of him, he's just a, a brilliant man and a great operator, um, full of life, very innovative, um, and met me and you know promised the world to me. But I don't really understand what you do, um, so I'm going to defer you to my head of strategy, who at the time was uh, before he was hacking his body, is a guy called Todd Sampson. Oh, uh, and so Todd uh, took me out for a coffee and. and we had this great conversation a couple of hours uh, on blues point road over there when leo Burnett were over in north sydney and what he i guess probably saw in me was a young guy who uh, i guess had a passion for creativity but not a lot of experience in it certainly in the commercial sense uh, but had a way of thinking a structure that i'd learnt from my consulting days had a passion for brands um and so he said look i'll put you on a three-month trial and uh, and paid me nothing uh and said come in for three months you paid me something but it wasn't enough to pay for the bus and uh and put me on a three-month trial and and basically his commitment was that he was going to turn me into a planner uh and so I remember turning up on the first day of Leah Burnett and this lovely secretary sort of said oh you must be our new senior planner and I looked around in reception said yes I am that is me <laughs> I'm here and I'm ready to go uh, and that was it. So a month later he offered me a full-time job and then I worked for him for four years. What was his boot camp that he was putting you through? Uh, look he was I, and I don't I think like I'm really indebted to Todd uh, and he's still a mentor for me as well uh, because, um he i think has been a real visionary in the strategy space um uh, and has gone on and done all sorts of things he wanted to do with his life which i think is is fantastic but when he was certainly on the tools i guess uh, he had a real worldly experience he had a similar background you know todd had had an mba under his belt he'd worked corporate side he'd then gone into advertising been in startups uh he um didn't look at channels like we look at channels he uh, it was really a driver of Leo Burnett being an integrated business. So we were doing shopper, some media planning, mm. um, promotional work, advertising. You know, we didn't really know what advertising was. It was just an integrated agency. And so I feel very fortunate to have landed in that place. But I can say that he gave me the start, so yeah. which is great. Wow. When's uh, your change into uh, TV coming? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't seen his new series, but... Uh, I don't know if I do as well as him. He's always been um, one to the, I guess sits on the extreme, but also one that's also just fascinated by the brain and the body yeah. and overall as well. Uh, and he's a fit guy, so he can handle anything. I'm not exactly that guy.
2: Anymore. <laughs> I don't know. I think you do yourself a
0: disservice, <laughs> mate. Uh, so the next the next title on your LinkedIn when I was when I was stalking through it was uh, global strategy lead at. Uh, BBDO. Mm. Um, how did you make the jump from senior planner to global strategy yeah, no, lead? Was there some wait, missing?
2: I, I feel like we have we have to kind of like look at that for what it is. So you were you were you went in with no planning experience basically as a senior planner, which Max and I still probably aren't that level slash uh, you know knocking up against that door. And we've had a couple of years in the industry, and then you were able to ace that in four years to go to. G- global yeah. how BBDO <laughs> New York
3: if I told you if I <laughs> look I guess there's a few things to that right there's um, the, the, the main part of all that is that you work in the US and you get some crazy title and you go in there ah. as a the most junior and all of a sudden you're a VP of something uh, and so it's largely uh, the titles over there have just gone ballistic and, and you, I guess it looks pretty good on a LinkedIn profile But, uh, like, that was, I think, you know, one of the formative moves for me. And and I uh, I guess more around feelings of just adventure. Um, I just wanted to live in New York. And so I was going to basically take whatever I could get over there. I I really just wanted to go and just embrace that city. And I'd always, always loved um, everything that sort of New York represents. Um, And so how I got over there, actually, was... um, uh, I went over there for some interviews off my own bat, and um, I <laughs> I got banned actually from not banned but barred from going into BBDO. Um, the the woman who eventually hired me, Tracy Lovett, who's just a brilliant brilliant leader, um, she just sort of seen some Aussie guy turn up in her calendar no doubt and got to brush him. Uh, And it was before the time where you really had... The iPhone, I think, had just been invented, but it wasn't a sort of a thing that people were rolling around with. And so I was still going to internet cafes to get my emails to go into these different interviews as I was running around (laughs) New York. And so I walked up knowing that the interview had been cancelled in the foyer of BBDO and said, I'm here for my three o'clock interview with Tracy. And then there was all this awkwardness and and Americans are actually very, very polite. And there's, well, um, there's a bit of confusion... Someone runs upstairs, back downstairs, upstairs, downstairs, <laughs> downstairs again. And they eventually said, I think the interview's actually been cancelled. I said, well, I'm here. And I've come all the way from Australia for this interview. So, I need to have it. And so, it's back upstairs again. Uh, and then Tracy came down and said, I can give you 20 minutes. Oh. Uh, and, uh, and I had an hour with her. Uh, and we had a great conversation. And she had some ideas on, on where I could potentially fit in. And I didn't hear anything else about it. And then I got... Uh, Just coincidentally, got married about uh, two months later, and I got a call the day before my wedding day to say we need you in New York on Monday. And I said that's going to be a problem because I'm getting married tomorrow. Uh, And uh, so, uh, in the end, I actually found out that I could go off the back of my honeymoon up to New York. I did one more interview, and then we were there two months later. So moved over there. So. So, that was sort of how I got over there, which I guess is a lesson, I guess, as you said, that start here around what are some lessons, just take the opportunities. Yeah, um, yeah don't accept no, because there was no way I was not going to go and see her, because I'd heard great things about her, and BBDO was an exceptional business over there.
2: And now it's time for a break. Are you a creative soul who feels crushed by the irrepressible reality of hilarious delusion you live in every day of your life? Perhaps you know more about Excel formatting than your significant other's private parts, resulting in a deep and throbbing pain emanating from your heart as you constantly ponder your sycophantic rise to the top of your organisational food chain. You may have even found yourself tapping your foot non-stop in the doctor's office as the pulsating flow of blood from your head convinces you that the work-related stress disease you read about in National Geographic one time is about to make your eyes pop from your skull atop a geyser of hot steam. Well, have I got a deal for you. Miami Ad School are offering a strategic planning boot camp that is almost sure to guarantee you a life filled with ever-changing, mind-bending creative challenges that help you make an actual difference within the world. Not only does it put you in touch with some of the world's best strategic minds, like the ones on this podcast, but you'll be investing in a chance to start your life anew. And the best thing? Given you're a loyal listener to the Son of a Pitch podcast, we'll waive your application fee so there's absolutely no risk to you whatsoever. Just email us at podcastsoap at gmail.com if you're interested. That's podcastsoap, S-O-A-P, podcastsoap at gmail.com. Now, let's get back to the good stuff.
3: But how I got there, there, what you sort of saw was interesting around and i say this to young planners and there's plenty of young planners here that that go over to the uk and the us is just know what your brand is Uh, at the end of the day you're going to have some shitty interview like i just talked through and you're going to have a moment where you've got to talk about what you are and uh, todd had been very good with me in saying you've got an expertise around male brands at the time now it was largely because there were a lot of very brilliant senior female planners at leoban at the time that didn't particularly want to work on Bundaberg Rum or Johnny (laughs) Walker or Rugby Australia or Subaru or all the brands that they kept giving me. Mm. And I went, well, it could either be my biggest negative that I'm only working on male focused brands or it could be a positive if I flip it around the other way. So when I went over there, I said, I'm the expert in male brands. And then she's equated that with Aussie guys I mean, well they're pretty masculine I guess uh, and so she put me on to run originally North America for Gillette which is the world's largest male brand yeah and that was sort of the way in that she could justify it to her Gillette clients and why she'd hide some idiot from Australia that no one had ever heard of before
2: oh wow that's a weird flex and it ends up being like the clincher yeah
3: that's right so Ooh, uh,
0: I guess what's, this would what's be your
2: a- brand then Max oh Put me on the spot, Vince. Yeah. L-
0: lovable idiot? I'm not sure. What's your,
2: per- what's your personal name? That'll get friend? you anywhere in the world. <laughs> lovable idiot? I don't know. In- interrupto <laughs> yeah. extraordinaire. I think that's my my thing.
0: Well, I think it would be a wasted opportunity to not ask your thoughts on uh, Gillette's latest campaign or oh, campaigns. They've released They've released the other one as well. But uh, is this the, the one? The big one.
3: Yeah. So what, remind me again. Uh, the best a man can be? The best a man can be. Think? Yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think all the criticism around that was largely from memory around they weren't doing anything. It was just an ad, wasn't it? I think that 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 was the piece. Um, And I think it's pretty brave, right? It's pretty brave to go do something like this. I I don't know enough about it. You know, Gillette uh, Gillette are an extraordinary business that happened to be a brand that represented, I guess, an outdated version of masculinity. Uh, And they went, and I think it was Grey, actually, New York, did some brilliant work with them. when they really started to understand, I guess, the role of, um, of fathers or male role models in young guys lives, yeah uh, so when I was on it, it was it was I guess simpler um, in that it was largely these rituals of a father handing down to his son how to shave. But you know, sadly, and, and as most of us experience, like houses are, are pretty broken these days. Fathers aren't around as much as they always have been. Yeah. And, and Gillette really took a, a clear angle, which is around actually positive male role models can mm. be brilliant for young guys. Mm. Uh, and I think they did some really interesting work around that, whether you like the ads or not. I think sure. the thinking was pretty cool. Okay. Um, and I think when they took it to that extreme... Um, you know, all of a sudden that really sort of got people's backs up around have they gone too far and what are they actually doing in the background? No, I don't know actually what they were doing in the background but I sort of like the thinking behind it actually and
2: I must say it's better work than I was involved in when I was on it so credit to them. What's what's some of the examples of the work that you did when you were on Gillette? Um,
3: Look, I had the fortune um, or the ill fortune to... Uh, work with Tiger Woods uh, right at the end of his relationship with Gillette, um, which was brilliant, right? So um, he's – at the time it was uh, Roger Federer, Thierry Henry and Tiger Woods and they were paying them a shitload of money to go and do a whole bunch of work uh, around the world and it really built the brand. It was great. It was this champion series and it was whatever – uh, and then uh, everything, I guess, happened with Tiger Woods in his his personal life, uh, and and it was interesting, right? Actually, because it was Ty, um, uh, Gillette took the opportunity to discontinue their relationship with him based on the values that he represented at that time, which was fascinating, right? Again, to go through that because you start thinking around that is that's a lot of money, uh, and it's a big big decision. So there were ads that we made that never saw the light of day off the back of that um so that was sort of probably more the serious side of some of the things we're doing but the stuff i loved over there actually i i feel like one of the things i brought to that team was the power of ethnography and Mm. really really getting under the skin of um, how that brand could relate to um, to guys in america and i convinced i don't know how i did this i convinced the clients to send me to the texas motor speedway for a week (laughs) nice and i lived on the infield Uh, of the race as the NASCARs were flying around, uh, and I had a film crew with me, and we basically pulled together a documentary of what it was like to be a full-on NASCAR fan, uh, and I just used the same line over and again, hi, I'm from Australia, I don't really know what's going on around here, but if you could tell me about XYZ, (laughs) and people are just so willing to share, so I was eating gumbo and you know they all wear dresses and they like look at cars burning out and they drink way too much beer but it was great fun and I wish we could do that more with brands like just have the money um, and the time to go and do that and look it was brilliant right we presented that to the most senior people at Procter & Gamble off the back of it to show them this is actually what masculinity looks like around your product and Gillette had a, a big sponsor with one of the NASCAR teams um, and so they really wanted to leverage it in a different way but it was work that would never never run here but it was good fun how did those really good fun
0: how did those insights inform uh the communication strategy from then on
3: like yeah i think it was you, you know look, you looked at a lot of the work and it was all those parodies that you've seen you know it's gone from 10 to 20 blades and it you know swiping <laughs> yeah. this way where did that woman's hand come from that sort of runs her fingers across <laughs> your face and all those sort of things <laughs> Um, so we got rid of all that and that, you know, that's you know, obviously in Procter & Gamble language called the demo and there's a, there's a role for it mm. but when you're talking to young guys around NASCAR, there's not a role for a demo and gotcha. it was just fun. Like We were just having fun. We were doing you know, gags to show that we really understood what um, young guys who had gone into NASCAR actually wanted in life and you know, if you're in the Midwest, in the US as well, uh, I'd speak to some mums and like the, the, the best path possible for their son would be to become a NASCAR driver mm. because it represented whol- wholesome values. You know, they, they looked at those guys and said they're just like us in that they drive normal cars. They just happen to drive them really fast in one direction. <laughs> um, and, and so we did work that just showed that we really understood what NASCAR was all about. We created this series called the Gillette Young Guns. We created a TV series off the back of it. You know, we did a, a partnership with EA Sports and we created a gaming tournament where you could go and actually go up against the best NASCAR driver in the world at NASCAR EA Games. Oh, wow. So, it was, it was really good fun. It was really good fun. How and, it, and it all sort of came from that insight.
2: How did you pick up the ethnography skill? Is that something that you learnt when you were at Leo's and then brought over or is that something that was fundamentally within the, the product of BBDO New York at the time and that you'd kind of carved out even more so? Because um, it's, it's, it's not something you learn at university, how to do ethno research or, or anything mm. like that. So. Yeah. Uh, I sort of fumbled
3: my way through it, I guess. Uh, and being a bit of a sports nut, I thought this is a good opportunity to go and watch NASCAR for a week. Yeah. But, uh, look, yeah, admittedly, there were some people in the team over there that were, that were pretty good at it, uh, and so I just went and sat at their desk and just tried to understand how it operated, mm. and they were really helpful in sort of talking around. It's as much as, I guess, how the questions are asked as it is around how they're presented back to the client as well, and so I think the tip around mm. bringing in a professional film crew that could bring it to life, so ethno can't be delivered through a PowerPoint presentation, but if you're sitting there and you're doing some, some something like what we're doing now, where you're holding a microphone, you're walking around, and it's all a bit scrappy, uh, and it feels very real, uh, and they can see for themselves what's happening in those situations and how people are living their lives, uh, it seemed to it seemed to work. It definitely resonated, and I think yeah, there's all too often there's great research decks that never see the light of day because people are just their borders bat when someone opens up and they're they see seeing their calendar research debrief and you yeah. go, okay this is an hour where i can look at my computer check facebook whatever it might be but if you walk in there and you've got a one pager and a film to watch it's quite a different research debrief
2: yeah definitely yeah. much more engaging yeah
0: um cool and so, then
2: should we yeah <laughs> I think it's like. And then what happened? (laughs) What's the end of the story? I I think we know what 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 happens after this. Well, we do. So it's it's the the legend of the industry, old mate David Droga, his agency Droga Five. You got drawn over over to that side of things, and obviously, I mean, at that time, kind of in the industry, I I think it was a bit of a. He was a bit of a, a. uh, firework that had exploded, right? Like, there's very different way of thinking about advertising and doing the brand acts and and those big kind of um, kind of campaigns. What what drew you over there, and, and how do you get brought over into into the madness of Droger?
3: Yeah, I mean that was a great chapter for me, and I'm still very close with a lot of the people I work with there. It, um, there's one thing around David Droger; he's a magnet for talent. And I somehow snuck in the door, but there were some amazing people uh, in that in that business, uh, and it was a culture shock. Yeah, you know, I, I bounced out of BBDO on Sixth Avenue with six hundred people, and there were twenty two people uh, in Darlinghurst in um, in an office space, uh, but they're just full of ambition and wanting to change um, change the way that advertising was operating in Australia. Um, and, uh, and there was a real audacity around what, what they were trying to do and um, that really attracted me. You know, it was if I'm going to come home, I want to do something very different again. I don't want to come back and work for another big network agency immediately. I want to go and throw myself into a different situation. Was it this job at Joker which brought you home? It- yeah, it was actually. They, uh, I got hired uh, by, by David and the team, Sarah, Johnny, over in New York um, and through, for a couple of reasons, uh, I never actually took the job over there. And, uh, and, and they were really um, appreciative of how honest I was and why I didn't do that. Uh, and then they called me up a month later and said, you're not going to believe it. We've got a role for you in Sydney if you'd be interested in, in, in taking that. So I met with the, the local leaders, um, Sadiq, uh and Nobby, uh, and they were peddling a really interesting brand of advertising and, and I really liked them. We're all really different characters and I knew I could learn a lot from them. Uh, and I thought, let's just jump in for the ride. So, yeah, after however long it was, three, four years in New York, uh, I came back to that role. What was this philosophy
0: on advertising which which fa- which you found so interesting?
3: Yeah, I think it was what you were talking about before around that idea around acts. There were genuinely all these media-neutral ideas that were just starting to roll out. Um, you know, uh, So much, I think, of the work that David has led and the people that he's hired to go and lead work um, just has... What we would say a brutal simplicity about it, um, you know, he would have a, a different a different way of talking about it. Uh, I can't remember all the all the creds that we went through at the time, but there was definitely a feel that you could do whatever you wanted to do, and I guess that came right from the start where they did the Air Force One piece with Mark mm-hmm. Echo. Uh, you know, that's that's brilliant work, and you think you've got to think how audacious that was at a time where they were three people, you know, in an office. You now, obviously, David had an extraordinary name behind him to go and do work like that. But to think that you would spend your whole media budget or your whole budget, I should say, on a stunt by hiring a plane, tagging it with Mark Echo. Was it Live Free? I think it was. Yeah. On the yeah, other still side. Free, yeah. Still free.
0: Yeah. I, I don't know this campaign. So, can I be the uninformed listener? Yeah. Can you this, guys explain this, this to me, please? Well, this
2: was actually probably like a little bit. Yeah. I think you, I was like, I must have been like 12 years old when I saw this and <laughs> downloaded right. this from the internet. Um but it was it was an old crackly like 3gp you know file that you could download and it had mark echo climbing into the air force 1 base and tagging what was supposedly air force 1 which is incredible, and how did you tee that up? How, uh, <laughs> it's right. Were, were you there when that campaign was being delivered, and and how did you sell it? in? If you look was really closely at the, t-
3: at the tag, you'll see a "still free, Justin", <laughs> Justin uh, at, the, at the bottom there. That's right. No, I had absolutely nothing to do with it. Um, but uh, there is something really interesting though around putting markers down as an agency. On that's the type of work you want to go and do, mm. uh, and that was a, that's a proper marker that yeah. one. And that's yeah, that was straight out of the gates with that piece of work, uh, and you know they went on to do uh, a whole bunch of brilliant work at the time tap project you know that went into um, you know so many of those titanium winning um, campaigns so you know the thought was if we could do some of that in Australia that would be really cool and I guess it was a responsibility you know David's Australian and um, and we knew that we'd get some traction in the market there Mm. so uh,
2: it was great. How did you sell in those kinds of ideas?
3: Um, it's, it's It's a good question probably a broader question around the success of how much we got through yeah, actually, uh, in that, you know, there's uh, the Australian market is still small. There's big budgets here, um, but uh, the, some of the clients that we were, were working with have obviously very strong commercial imperatives behind them, uh, and and there's some really good work on the table. And, and you know, it's one of those things where you're only as good as what you make. And there were some things that we just didn't get to make in the end, which was mm-hmm. unfortunate because they're missed opportunities. There was some really great work. Um, that we did over that time as well that, that, that felt really interesting, work on Mondelez, VB, um, that Cam Blackley here, who's now a CCO-led, um, I still think the regulars, um, the campaign that they, that they launched around the relaunch of VB, basically, um was just brilliant work and you know we don't do that type of work anymore super insightful really interesting uh, really interesting work and i guess some of the stuff in that campaign is still part of the vernacular here in terms of punching above your weight and etc so some really good work you know some really interesting work tell us about the transition from um
0: droga 5 to C. how did that come about
3: it came about in a couple of ways. MC Saatchi was always a brand that I'd admired in in Australia. Yeah, again, I use that word, I guess, audacious before, uh, and the MC Sarchi story is pretty audacious as well. You know, it's um, a, a some would say maverick. Some would say maverick. That's <laughs> right. Let's hope. Let's hope that's not an omen. But it's very good. Um, you know, there's uh, I think there's a book around Morris and Charles Sarchi called Chutzpah and Chutzpah, um, which is around I guess. Um, how they wanted to go and roll and, and you know there's a famous story I'll, I'll, get to your, I'll answer your question in a second but there's a famous story around Morris that um, when he graduated from uni he went and got a job as a, as a graduate at um, I think it's called Haymarket which owned Campaign in the UK and there's only one sort of trade mag over there and its campaign and at the time it was an incredibly prestigious position and you could go in there uh, and you could become a graduate and you'd earn a thousand pounds a year and it was, it, was a, it was a good job. Mm. Uh, and so young Morris gets interviewed uh, and they want to offer him the job. And at the end of the interview, he says, I'd just like to talk about the salary. And they said, well, it's standard. It's, you know, this is a long time ago. It's standard, it's 1,000 pounds a year. And he said, not going to work for me. Uh, I need 2,000 pounds a year. So, so <laughs> doubling, doubling the salary right from the start. And anyway, he walked out of that meeting with a 2,000 pound salary and wow. a job. And it sort of shows the audacity of what they went to do. Uh, and, you know, they, um, they went and built, I guess, the most famous advertising brand in the world. You know, Saatchi is sort of the advertising name that your mum knows as well as it's known on the high street and in, in corporate circles all around the world. You know, they went on to get fired from their own company. They tried to buy a bank. Uh, they went out on their own. They walked across the road. They set up a shop calling themselves the new Saatchi agency. They got fired. So they got sued. Uh, and then they eventually launched MNC Sarchi and and I've uh, I sort of learnt this over time I guess this this great story that they set up MNC Sarchi around some principles which was around we only need to be where we need to be so we will not grow for the sake of growth which is very different to most of the other network agencies um, we actually want the least number of offices possible but we want to make the biggest impact um, there's a piece around ownership for the for people coming in so this idea that if you have a, a, I guess, a, a stake in businesses, then you're going to be more invested in that business as well. Uh, and they really wanted to do audacious work that had impact. And so, you know, Emcey's Archie set up in Australia 25 years ago. Next year, actually, uh, and they went and built a great brand here. You know, it was um, it was big, sort of high end, simple advertising, smart advertising. You know, big brand platforms, 100 percent pure New Zealand, can, Wire Pick, uh, Woolies at the time. Um, yes with Optus um, they did a lot of great work over the years and I, I admired them from afar and thought wouldn't it be interesting to apply some, some of my skills I guess around strategy to an organisation like that that clearly is very strategically focused so James Leggett who's my partner here, is the chief exec he called me up and said hey um, I'm new in town I'm interested in um, talking to some CSOs I've been talking to CSOs around the world uh, do you wanna have a coffee? And so I had a coffee with him and you know, we got on pretty well. And uh, I just thought, look, this is something really interesting, young guy, ambitious, working with one of those great brands. So I came on board uh, and, and there'd never been a CSO in this business before. Uh, and there were some really good planners here at the time, uh, but they didn't have, I guess, a, a structure and a, and a leader to, to represent them at the, I guess you'd say at the top table. Uh, so we went about going on a bit of a different path. Um, uh, very quickly, we set down a couple of markers. I was talking about markers before what Droger did. We set down some markers around the type of work that we wanted to make, but we set a vision first, which was to be the most influential creative company in Australia by 2020. And uh, didn't really know how I was going to measure that. And I've had I must have had a hundred people come to me and go, Jazz, how are you going to measure that? And uh, I, I don't know actually. <laughs> and and it's very close to 2020 now. Uh, but this idea of influence was really interesting and being a creative company, not just an advertising agency, it was really interesting. And so it was really important that the first work that we did, uh, I guess with the new management team, reflected that. And that was when you started to see some really interesting work from ComBank, from Optus, Clever Boy coming out from Optus, mm. um, which went and won a whole bunch of awards, d and CAN, on stage all over the world. Um, Fire Blanket with NRMA got voted the number one innovation Australia by the AFR. Then our company became the most innovative company in Australia, uh, and so I just sort of used that as a proxy. To say, yeah, yeah, we did the vision thing. That's uh, that's influence over there. Innovation, the same thing, um, which didn't quite fly. But it's important that you know, I guess, to recognise that we're on a journey here at MC's Archie, and that's a really trite, horrible thing to say. You might want to edit that out later on. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but we are. We've made a heap of mistakes, uh, and we're. Um, trying new things um, and, uh, and, you know, we're sort of at a period now, I think, of reflection of five years in, okay, what does the next five years start to look like? And what does the next five years start to look like? Yes, I was, I was stalling for time then. Uh, <laughs> look, I think, yeah, we, we will continue to um, stick to some of the principles that we have, which is around, there's one, brutal simplicity of thought, big platforms in market that make a, a, a difference. Yeah, we're really fortunate to work with some great brands in Australia now, big brands, Woolies, Combank Optus, Lexus, Tourism Australia, Tab. Uh, really, really interesting brands and a whole bunch of really interesting, I guess, um, challenges as well. Um, but we see, I think it's probably what I said right at the start around this idea of looking at problems not just through the lens of advertising, we're going to ramp that up mm. uh, and we need to apply our skills to brands around growth, to businesses who want to change and to entrepreneurs uh, mm. that need platforms to go and do things in a different way. And, you know, the last few years we've invested uh, in a whole bunch of small companies uh, and that's been great. It's great for the people here because there's so many entrepreneurial people at, at m and they get to go and flex that side of their brain on smaller pieces of business and understand oh god you know cash flow and distribution and all the fun things that we don't often get to see certainly as strategists, but definitely in advertising agencies Um, we'll continue to look for new ways to i guess connect with people Uh, a a big a big part of that is what we launched last year which is this film studio so we're um, we're creating long form branded content as well as feature films Uh, and we've got four in the making at the moment, um, all over the world actually. Uh, And that's really interesting because it's a totally different conversation. It's when a brand has to organically find itself in a movie or in a long form piece of content um, or or just uh, sponsor it and use that content to leverage the content in its own way, either with staff or in different channels. It's really requiring us to think
2: differently around how we build brands. And, and I think it really changes the role of strategy as well. Yeah, wow. And how do you gear up a strategist within M&C Saatchi to start thinking in that way if there have been traditional planners previously?
3: Yeah, I think there's – I understand why you use the word traditional as well. Mm. Uh, but there's in some ways, there's nothing traditional around the people that we've got here and the people that we want in the building as well. They're people that have a a real passion for people and empathy that, you know, I think at at our best, and I say at our people here, the strategists, uh, we're storytellers at heart. Uh, And so, it's just thinking around how you can tell that story on a different level. Mm, mm. Uh, You know, if you start thinking around longer form content, there's story arcs that you get to go and play with and you you sort of do that through campaigns we naturally do that anyway but how do you do that in a continuous piece of content Mm. and then all the other things that hang off it so if you think around it not just as a piece of content as a product and we can borrow this from the great talent agencies in the world the CAAs the WMEs who think about things in a very different way and they think around where they can push talent into product um, into new experiences into startups um, into lots of different areas and we want to just flex our muscles to go with that because we feel like we've made some big mistakes. We've had some wins around building the things that are well outside of the advertising space mm. and we need to do more of that in the future. The industry needs to do more of it. It's not just Nevin thing. It's it's the industry.
2: Do you think you're going to be a boy for the other agencies? Are you going to pull everyone up with you uh, in that sense?
3: Look, we're not the only ones doing it and, uh, and I get inspired by everyone uh, around around us that you know experiment in different ways like anomaly were brilliant at doing mm. this sort of back in the day um you know droga five you know when they um, have gone on their journey of being invested in by wme and then going into accenture like they're doing it in their own way as well look i think there's a responsibility for bigger agencies to to pull everyone up and i and i, and I speak to other people that are in I guess what you consider the larger agencies in Australia and and they all share the same responsibility and I hope everyone gets pushed up in that space you know you I, I think it comes back to that point around we all just want to get better briefs yeah uh, and we all just want to solve better problems and if we can prove ourselves in that space and we need to prove ourselves we need to put runs on the board I think it's just that'll be a cracking future
0: yeah one thing I'd like to touch on a bit more is the relationship you have with these entrepreneurs and taking a stake in the company actually having equity in these small businesses but using your marketing brains to help scale them up and and that's that's your uh uh sort of uh, not commitment <laughs> that's your uh contribution to helping that company grow. Yeah. Uh, I saw an ad for uh, Jennifer Hawkins new Tequila brand. Yes. Can you go in a bit to the, um, into that one and tell us about how you've, you've helped Jennifer uh, scale, scale this brand?
3: Yeah, they're, I mean, they're, they're a great business. You know, they, um, they had this idea to go and create um, a sophisticated te- tequila. They saw a gap in the market. They have a passion for the space. Um, it's um, Jennifer and her husband, Jake, uh, another guy, Tim Freeburn, who's the managing director of the piece as well. And a couple of other investors got together and and decided to go and create this brand uh and i mean entrepreneurs being an entrepreneur is hard right but i think it's also in your blood and they are brilliant at what they do and we just started chatting to them when they Mm -hmm. were looking to raise some money uh and said look have you thought about raising your capacity to go and build brand as opposed to just raising the money because you know, for a great product like that, there's a lot of people that want to get money into that. Um, and we feel very fortunate that they wanted to partner with us as well around some of the brand services that we could offer. Uh, and it's great because you come in there as a partner on equal terms. You're not sitting there, you, you sit around a table looking at work together. And, and, you know, it's been a situation with them where we sit around and we think around. What does the liquid need how does liquid need to evolve what are the um, what do the bottles need to start to look like if we're going to do a limited edition bottle who's it targeting and so you start thinking about it from that point of view as opposed to hey we've got this new product can you go make some ads to go and talk to some people about buying it yeah. and that's been great so we're we're running really fast in Australia around distribution in that space um, uh, we're running really fast through the US as well so it's launched through the U.S. and it's getting some great traction over there because it stands out in that market. Uh, and we'll see where it goes. I mean, at the end of the day, every agency wants a tequila brand that they own. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> certainly, Just certainly, certainly the makes, fridge. Yeah. Certainly <laughs> makes Friday nights more interesting. And, <laughs> um, and they're great partners. So, yeah, we've learned a lot uh, from them and we want to do more of that, yeah. more of that work. We've got a few others that we, we can't talk about at the moment, but Uh, we will do more of that work. And I think it's, again, coming back to the industry around understanding what value they add. And once Mm. you understand what value you add, then you can sell it to someone and they see that value
2: do do people willingly come to you with their ideas or are you looking a lot of the time so in in a sense is what I'm asking is if someone's out there listening and they have an incredible startup idea do they come and knock on MNC Sachi's door do they leave a business plan at the at the the table at the front or how does that work
3: look it it, it does happen uh, I'd love it to happen more. I think we've got a long way to go to position ourselves in that community as well, because mm. uh, it's an impressive community of entrepreneurs. They've got some great ideas that we can learn a lot from. Look, that would be a dream, right? If if people were looking at M C S Arch and saying, "Wow, that looks like a place where creative entrepreneurs could go and hang out, and their businesses would be built," that would be. That would be a dream. And that's a huge responsibility, right? Because this is people's, often it's their ideas that they have just poured everything into, not just money. It's it's the time, it's the passion, it's the sacrifices they've made. Uh, and as they start to get some traction and then we start looking and think, okay, well, it's a real role to build a brand at this point. That's a big responsibility as well. And yes, yeah, so I'd love this place to be a home for people like that.
0: Yeah. Brilliant! I was going to make a segue before about like needing tequila for the pitch segment, but uh, that's <laughs> well, all right. Feel
2: free to go ahead. <laughs> no, it's gone now. <laughs> <laughs> it's gone. The love is gone. All right. Just like cars oh, in the city. Yeah. So great segue. Yeah, that was, that was shocking.
1: Now it's time to put your talents to the test Now it's time to give a scenario to our guests So what would be your strategy? Break it down, let's see how you do it Problem insight, strategy and solution We now
0: live in a world where cars are everywhere. More people are driving than ever before and the number of cars in our city roads is at an all time high. Many people believe banning cars in cities may help combat the rising pollution levels and make cities less congested. However, many view cars as an essential mode of transport and think that current public transport may not be able to cope with so many people. We wanted to find out what people thought, so we asked teachers, should cars be banned in large cities?
2: Uh, What are your thoughts on being given a brief for a a podcast (laughs) to solve? Yeah, it is a bit of an extra ask. It's bloody
3: scary, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I feel like I'm on Gruen transfer or something like that. Oh, that's we did. Um, we
2: ripped it straight from the Gruen transfer. That's so all right. Blatant See, stealing. I, I, good ideas
3: should continue on. I think that's 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 totally fine. Uh, how do I feel about it? Look, I think it's great. It's great to to think about things a different way. And yeah, this task around uh, convincing Australians to vote yes in a plebiscite to ban cars from all Aussie CBDs is something actually I haven't thought about that much and so it's it's just great to think about topics that you wouldn't normally engage with um and from someone that loves cars as well (laughs) it goes against every core in my being uh to think around banning cars anywhere in the world but um i'll I'll, I'll put on my environmental hat for a second
2: can we ask what you drive at the moment
3: uh yeah you can (laughs) i've got three girls so i've got um uh, i've got a van right uh, i've got a vespa uh, and I've actually got an, an old, um, an old Mercedes, which I love very, very much.
2: Oh, he's a, a man goodness. with taste, that's so, for sure.
3: Yes. So uh, yeah, so that uh, sometimes works, sometimes doesn't, but it's a labour of love. Very which nice. Is great. Very nice.
2: So, how do you go about solving solving the issue?
3: Yeah, I think it's uh, it's an interesting one. As I said, I, I I did all of about five minutes research, which is no disrespect to this podcast. It's, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure we're going to change the world through this. That's three times more research than any other guest puts it's into fantastic. it. So that's good, right? So I, I, <laughs> I, I okay, that's that's time well spent. Um, look i think it's interesting right This this idea around convincing australians to vote yes in a plebiscite we love a plebiscite in australia now um banning cars across all um all, all cbds feels like a really black and white call uh and to run out there and do that so so where, where i looked at it, i started to think okay where where is some examples of this around the world and i think it's always good in when you see a new problem to go let's just, there's smart people out there that are solving these problems and doing it in different ways and Uh, fortunately when I jumped into Google the first document that came up was 13 cities that are starting to ban cars Um, so that felt like the right one for me to go and have a look at Uh, and look it's it's interesting right there's um, you know great cities around the world are dealing with this in different ways and and the thing that I sort of pulled away from that and I guess my sort of first insight before I get into a bit of a structure here uh, was around I, I don't think there's a lot of opposition there would be some opposition but the majority of people, I think, are trying to reduce our, our need and our dependency on cars mm-hmm. uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. You know, environmental factors being a big one around that, safety being another one as well. Um, what's going to happen in cars over the next few years is going to be unreal actually with the tests going on around autonomous driving and um you you go so many ways with this with this brief because i could see a world where you do ban cars that are driven but actually it's all autonomous vehicles that are moving people around Mm, cities and mm. actually that'd be quite cool um but i think the intent behind is an interesting one and uh um this thought around um how you start inching your way to have a world where um cars are banned in the city i think is is a great one and sort of worth sort of putting some thought around where i got to though in terms of the problem i guess defining it for me and looking at this was you know how do we convince australians to support taking non-resident vehicles off the roads within our cbds because it feels like that's the first step sit there and go all the extra cars that are you know stuffing up our our cities that everyone gets the shits around mm. um that feels like the thing to go and get moving and that's still gonna be a massive effort. So, so where do I get to from there? I sort of think around, I guess, utilitarian principles around how you go and create the greatest benefit for the greatest number of people. Uh, and so, and, and you know, inspiring, being inspired by what other cities have done. Everyone's thought about that in, a, in quite a different way. Yeah, back when I was talking about New York before, so 10 years ago when I was living in New York, they brought in something called Summer Streets so, over August and September, every second Sunday, I think it was, hmm. uh, they'd shut down the major roads in Manhattan. Yeah, And right. they'd return it to really? the villages that, that live in New York, you know, the, the people there. Uh, and I remember it just being just the most magical summer days because you'd walk up and down Fifth Avenue and you know, first Avenue, whatever. And you'd see things you never saw before. Cause you're normally stuck in a taxi or whatever it might be. So I sort of love that. And I love the idea that, you know, the cities in Australia could go and do something like that. You know, other people are banning people going into the city, charging a whole bunch of money, like London, the commuter tax, etc. cetera. Mm. Um, Berlin sitting there, taking away streets and putting bikes back in that place as well, which I think is interesting. And, and where I got to around this and, I think what would be compelling to Australians is really jumping off this insight that, um, that you know, that we are so disconnected at the moment. Um, and we're disconnected for a whole bunch of reasons. We don't know our neighbours. Uh, we don't trust anyone. We mm. sit there. I know we've all got headphones on at the moment, but we sit there with our headphones on, uh, in our, yeah, head in our phone. And I think if you reframe cars to look at they are vehicles that disconnect people. And it's interesting. I was looking at some advertising recently and that they were selling new cars. I think it was a Hyundai ad. Um, not, not around the features of the car in terms of how fast it drives, or what it looks like. It was all around its connectivity. And they had a young girl sitting in there and she had Apple Play or whatever it was. And she used the car simply as a time to go and talk to people, basically. Which I thought was quite interesting around you'd sell huh. a car that way. I thought there's something in that around showing cars as a point of disconnection in society that you're sitting there by yourself getting angry you're not focused and actually if you started taking away cars then the roads would come away as well if you took away the roads then actually people would start to connect again so you know i once saw i think a trend deck which talked about an overarching macro trend in australia which is around our need to go and return to the village Mm. Uh, and that we all yearn to go back to simpler days where there was a town hall and there was a cricket field and there was a whatever. And, you know, you can attribute things like... Um, you know the growth I'm a rugby guy the, like the growth into the shoot shield and sort of suburban rugby and things like craft beer uh, you know like exploding because everyone only wants to drink the beer from their local area mm. and craft gins or whatever so I think there's something in there which is around this return to the village if you took away cars at that point of disconnection and started uh, freeing up space to allow people to connect again whether it be in public spaces uh, whatever it might be I think there could be something really interesting there um, how it would roll out in Australia. You know, I, I, I need some more time. and some. <laughs> no worries. Yep. What, I, what I would say is it, like, the word national in there, a national mm. plebiscite, I think that's a furphy. Sure. Because I think I, there's some things like... Um, uh, like the recent yes vote, which we all want to get behind. Yeah, But there's other things where we are massively geographically driven. And I think this is one of them. Yep. And I think you would target cities in different ways to, to go and do it. I think the, the mm. world for Sydney would be very different to the world for Melbourne versus Brisbane, for example. And I'd start picking it off in those places around how do you want to recreate – I sort of love this term, sydney cider. It's, yep. it's a little bit lost over time, but Sydney-siders all have their own side of Sydney – and if you wanted to go and resurrect what that could look like, and get people sort of showing off their side of City, mm. the different villages that exist again, that could be um, that could be amplified through what you could show with um, what would happen in the CBD. So that's the that's the long version. Yes. That's the, that's the whole, I didn't have time to write a short letter, so I wrote a long one. Oh, yeah, I'll yeah, come back yeah. to you with the, with the short one. But I, look, like, I think it's, it's sort of an interesting space and we were talking sort of off air before around behavioural science and I think you, you're right. This would be one of those things where you would, you would run at that and I remember seeing some, some data around the last plebiscite which was that vote was won with this, the, the soft nose. Mm. so if you think hard nose soft nose huh. hard uh, soft yeses hard yeses you're trying to convince the soft nose so people that are sitting there going yeah well i'm not really sure about it i don't really like change um, how do you get that mass of people to go mm. and shift over to even being soft yeses mm. and once they get into the soft yes and they become hard yeses around what they've done to i guess move society forward i think something like this would be one of those areas and that would be almost the segmentation you go after yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, but the, it's, it's feeling right like <laughs> now. I feel like there's a lot of words that don't make a lot of sense. No, I, I like
0: I like that it, uh, insight that when you're in your car, it's almost being a bit like a keyboard warrior. You got that yes. online disin in, in a bit. I can't even say that word. Definitely not going to be able to say it for the pod. But that keyboard warrior effect, where you feel disconnected from the outside world, so you, you're willing to take on more risk. So I love I love that angle of actually taking away the cars forces people back into like, just tribes. Con- I and, think it's yeah. just to connect again. Yeah. I think
3: you know. Uh, like I was out last night in in Sydney, which I don't do very often because I've got young girls. <laughs> uh, and I was uh, I was actually up in Kings Cross, yeah. and I was sitting there going, "Wow, this has changed, right?" And it's changed for all those different reasons that we know about. But all those great sides to Sydney, if there weren't cars in yeah. there, and I was thinking about this last night. There you go. Yeah, that, I'm actually really? thinking <laughs> about this before. It's I way I more in than here. five minutes yeah. worth. Uh, you, you know, um, imagine if you just gave that space back to the metaphorical villages uh, mm. that existed mm. there. So. Um, I don't know if I'm going to sell it, but that's... No, I like it. That would be my response.
2: What a colorful village King's Cross would be it would as well. Be, it would yeah, be. That'd bring back the soul. I mean, yeah.
0: That's I, right. I like Sydney Siders because you do see it. You would see a different side of Sydney as I well. I think so, yeah. As well as exposing so. the current
3: sides that are there. I feel um, like that might be running towards a prop. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, not for today. Love
0: it. Uh, so, what we'll do is we're going to actually put this into a little deck to release with the pod. So, <laughs> people can go through this strategy while they're listening. So, with your permission, of course... We would like to acquire this uh, piece of uh, intellectual property of course. from you.
3: I don't know how it's going to help you, but you can absolutely <laughs> take that. It's right. It's right there. Just don't listen to it in your car. Yeah. Ooh. Get out there and actually talk to someone.
2: There that's we go. it. Yeah. Yeah. If people are playing in, in the streets, you might might hit someone. It'd be pretty yeah, dangerous. Right. Uh,
0: uh, son of a pitch podcast is not liable if you hit no. someone with your car. We're not. Um,
2: please, please look at the road while you drive. Is there anything you want to plug to our two listeners?
3: <sighs> no. Go and drink Session there you go oh, that, that's, yeah. the, that's the plug the, at okay. the end there session. that's right there you go. Guess, uh, when, when you become a partner you want to go and get people out there so drink responsibly that, Session Tequila is that session in
2: Spanish it is Ah.
0: wow there you go and I the like podcast it. went bilingual that's it I end on that I don't yeah. think it's going to get any better no
2: it's not thank you so much <laughs> thanks, for being Justin. part of the pod Justin Dex, no worries unreal well done guys cheers thanks that's good You have been listening to a Son of a Pitch podcast. My name is Vince. And my name is Max. And we're both planners living in
0: Sydney, Australia. A big thanks to Helga Diamond and Miami Ad School for supporting the show. And if you want to get that $100 fee waived for Miami Ad School, please drop us a line at podcastsoap at gmail.com. That's podcastsoap at gmail.com.
2: See you next time.
1: Bye yeah uh son of a pitch yeah this is something you don't want to miss uh-huh. interviews with creatives and the best strategists all the top in australia who's steady making moves uh-huh. the podcast that puts you right in the pitch room yeah professionals in this market uh, time to get it started uh, giving some complex problems so let's see how you can solve it tune in with some aussies i bet you can't resist yeah yeah get it hyped this is son of a pitch yeah.